It is great to be together to worship God. And once again, I want to uh, say a, a word of welcome to all of our campuses who are joining us on uh, this stream to each of our campuses this morning. Um, you know, when I was a teenager, there was a movie called Crocodile Dundee, and my favorite Australian was uh, Paul Hogan, Mick Dundee. You might remember him. And then I got a little older, and I kind of I thought that Great Norman, the shark, was the coolest Australian. And then I got a little older, and I thought that, well, it's Steve Irwin, you know, the crocodile hunter. He's the coolest Australian. And then I got a little older, and I thought, well, Hugh Jackman, he might be the coolest Australian. And now I have come to realize that the coolest Australian is none of those guys, but our own friend, Dr. John Dixon. And we're thrilled to have him back, yeah. Not only my favorite Australian, but also my favorite podcast host, one of my favorite authors, and I'm just so grateful to God that we get to, be sit, to sit under his teaching together here at Chapel Street Church. So I'd like to invite Dr. Dixon up here and then talk to you about something that's coming up. Uh, people will, from time to time will ask me uh, if they have a friend who's uh, not a Christian or is exploring faith, what book should you recommend? And I always recommend Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, not surprising. But this book here, A Doubter's Guide to Jesus by Dr. John Dixon, is a book I'm frequently giving out and recommending. And we're going to do a four-part series starting September 23rd, Saturday night, in this room, four consecutive Saturday nights at 6.30 on A Doubter's Guide to Jesus. Uh, we're thrilled to have John. He's going to be lecturing. There'll be Q&A. The whole point of this is for you to pray now about who you would invite in your life to come and discover Jesus. So anything else you want to tell us about what we can expect? Uh, well, I'll be on my best behavior, I promise. Uh, so if I let you down today, just, I promise you, those talks will be much better. Um, and look, the thing is, even secular scholars agree that the most influential person in history is Jesus. And so I want to sort of tease out why. How did that happen? What was so special about him that it changed our world and can change your world personally? I'm particularly thinking of your friends who aren't sure what to make of Christianity, who doubt the whole thing. And that's why we're going to have a Q&A. So I will wrap it on for maybe 35 minutes, and then I want to take 20 minutes of Q&A from the floor, because I think that's where the fun uh, will really begin. So that, that's, my, that's my hope. Wrap it on is Australian for preaching. Oh, apparently. no. Uh, talking, <laughs> talking, rabbiting on. Yeah. So please, pick one of these up as you leave today. Start thinking now about who you invite. And maybe you yourself are thinking, well, I have questions about Jesus. This is the perfect event for you as well. So we're excited about that. We're praying for that and for you. Let's make the most of it beginning September 23rd. Now, I'm going to invite you to stand as Kim comes to read to us the word of God before John preaches to us. A reading from the book of Proverbs, chapter 3, verses 13 through 22. Blessed are those who find wisdom, those who gain understanding, for she is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. She is more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. Those who hold her fast will be blessed. By wisdom, the Lord laid the earth's foundations. By understanding, he set the heavens in place. By his knowledge, the watery depths were divided, and the clouds let drop the dew. My son... Do not let wisdom and understanding out of your sight. Preserve sound judgment and discretion. They will be life for you, an ornament to grace your neck. Please sit down. 
At the heart of our culture, and I mean American and Australian culture, is a very unhappy paradox. In fact, you could call it the unhappy paradox. Uh, We are the wealthiest, healthiest, most comfortable, most pleasured society in world history. Uh, Arguably, most of us live more convenient and comfortable lives than even the greatest leaders of world history. Julius Caesar, Charlemagne, Napoleon, King George, boy, you got rid of him, um, Abraham Lincoln. You live, if you're an average American, a more convenient and comfortable life than any of these people. And yet, here's the paradox. Arguably, we are the least happy culture in history. I don't even need to cite the studies about the rise of mental illness because I'm sure everyone in the room has seen the massive uptick in the last 30 years. Some of you have been touched by it closer than you would have liked. But did you also know there has been a disturbing uptick in what psychologists call deaths of despair? A recent review of 17 scholarly studies into this concluded, overall, findings identify a progressive increase in deaths attributable to suicide, drug overdose, and alcohol-related liver disease in the USA in the last 20 years. So ponder this. Health... Wealth, comfort, convenience are pursued more and achieved more in our culture than ever before. And it hasn't produced happiness. And we keep pursuing these things in the hope that they do, even though all of the studies reveal that wealth has almost no impact on genuine human happiness. Did you know that? Dan Gilbert, you may know, is a professor of psychology at Harvard University, one of the leaders today in the so-called positive psychology movement. And he famously quipped that 90% of the happiness attributable to wealth comes from the first 10% of wealth. By which he means, once you have covered clothing and food and maybe a roof over your head, that's all that wealth can contribute to happiness. The rest of the 90% of your wealth can hardly increase happiness at all. Sure, you remember when you bought a car, right, last year or whatever, and and you felt awesome about it for two weeks. And then it's straight back down to the baseline. New clothes, the same. New gadgets, the same. It doesn't work. Why do I raise this in what is the last in a series 
on the pursuit of wisdom from the Old Testament book of Proverbs. Because as we conclude the series, I want to talk about the connection between wisdom and the truly blessed life. The thing that ultimately every human is after, the true blessed life. One of the recurring equations through this Old Testament book of Proverbs that we've been looking at is that those who pursue wisdom will be blessed. The passages are too numerous for me to quote one after another, but there they are if you want to take a snap of that or just take it in. Wisdom leads to blessing. But the passage that Kim just read us, I think, is a perfect example, which is why I want to hover on Proverbs 3 for a little bit. Blessed are those who find wisdom, those who gain understanding. For she is more profitable than silver, yields better returns than gold. I find this interesting because the ancient author knew that humans chase after silver, chase after gold as if that's the thing that brings blessing. But the author knows it doesn't. It's wisdom. He goes on. She, that is wisdom, is more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand, in her left hand are riches and honour. Her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. Those who hold her fast will be blessed. In other words, if you missed it in the first line, blessed are those who seek wisdom, you get it in the last line. Those who get her are blessed. Now, let me make something very clear. I'm not exactly saying that the biblical word blessed means precisely the same thing as happy in the trivial sense. But there is a significant overlap between the biblical idea of blessed and the serious modern psychological research into what they call happiness, but really they mean satisfaction with life, contentment, a sense of well-being, One of the fathers of the positive psychology movement is this guy, Martin Seligman, from the University of Pennsylvania. And in a famous TED Talk, which you can go and watch yourself, he outlines the findings of the last 40 years of research into this topic of happiness, which is defined in the literature as a sense of well-being in life. And he says in this lecture that psychologists have worked out there are really three kinds of happiness, which you have to think of as three levels of happiness. And the first is the obvious one, pleasure. The research suggests that if you're someone who gets a lot of pleasure, you know, you're able to drink a lovely bottle of wine, you go on many holidays, you you know, have parties, you are likely to have a slightly elevated level of happiness. But it's not long-lasting. There's a second level that's higher than pleasure, and they call it flow. Flow. What it means is things basically go well for you. You you enjoy good health. You've got a job that feels rewarding, and you've got relationships that are functional. If you have flow in your life, you will have higher levels of happiness or sense of 
contentment than those with pleasure. But he says, even though he's not a religious man at all, the third level, the highest level of happiness, according to the research, is what he simply calls meaning. People who believe they are participating in a higher purpose have the highest levels of happiness. Even if they don't have much pleasure or flow. That's the interesting thing. If you believe you participate in something higher than yourself, you've hit the jackpot of happiness, meaning. Now, for a historian, this is almost funny. Um, I know it doesn't sound funny, it sounds very serious, and it is very serious, but for a historian it's funny because it's exactly what the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle said. Now, I don't mean to turn this into a lecture on Aristotle, which would be totally good for us, I must say. Aristotle, the most famous student of Plato, the smartest man in the world until uh, St. Augustine came along. Um, Amazing. Influenced our world in incredible ways. But he wrote a whole book about this idea of happiness. And he basically argued, here's your 60-second Aristotle. If you want 60 seconds on Aristotle, that's all you want in your life, here it is. He said... A rational creature like humans can be happy only when it knows the rationale of the cosmos, what he called metaphysics, and is still in philosophy called metaphysics, and when that creature lives in accordance with that rationale. Ethics, and it's still called ethics. To put it another way, Aristotle, this non-Christian philosopher, had worked out that a human can only ever be happy when it, uh, to give you an analogy, hears the drumbeat of the universe and then begins to dance along. Hears the melody of the spheres and sings in harmony. Metaphysics and ethics. 2,300 years before the positive psychology movement. And the reason I tell you that, in case you're wondering, is because the coolest thing is the Bible was saying that before Aristotle. The book of Proverbs made clear that the truly happy person, the truly blessed person, is the one who knows the rationale of the universe and lives in accordance, who can hear the melody and can sing along with it. Metaphysics and ethics, even though the Bible doesn't call it those things. And the biblical word for this happy match between knowing what the universe is about and knowing how to live in tune with it is blessed. And this, ultimately, is what the book of Proverbs is about. Which brings us straight to Proverbs 3 and that opening paragraph that was read to us. Wisdom, we're told, is the source of blessing. Blessed are those who find it. It's more profitable for your life than the new car and the beautiful dress and the gadget or the silver and gold. Her ways, verse 17, are more pleasant. Her paths are peace. 
Don't you want peace? It's found in wisdom. I find this remarkable, verse 18. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. Now, those of you who know your Bibles know the tree of life only pops up a couple of times in the Bible. Remember where it first pops up? In the Garden of Eden. In the center of the garden was the tree that Adam and Eve were allowed to eat. It's called the tree of life. Same word that's used here. And and, and in the book of Genesis, it embodies the idea that, that you've got to be nourished by God for eternal life. And and then in the narrative of Genesis 3, they're booted out of the garden, away from the tree of life, and they travel east of Eden, right? And when does the tree of life pop up again? The last chapter of the whole Bible. Revelation 22. And we're told that in the center of God's new city was the tree of life. But isn't it interesting that here it is compared to wisdom. Wisdom is a tree of life, which kind of tells us there is more going on in this biblical idea of wisdom than just like having cool proverbs for how you live. And the second stanza of this passage read to us explains exactly why wisdom is so much bigger than human intelligence and insight. Here it is, the second stanza. It turns out, wisdom is God's own genius by which he made the universe. Here it is. By wisdom, the Lord laid the earth's foundations. By understanding, he set the heavens in place. By his knowledge, the watery depths were divided and the clouds let drop the dew. My son, do not let wisdom and understanding out of your sight. Preserve sound judgment and discretion, for they will be life to you in ornament to grace your neck. Wisdom is so precious. You must never let it out of your sight. Why? Because it is the genius of God by which he made everything in the world. Wisdom undergirds reality. Or in these words here, by wisdom the Lord laid the earth's foundations. So actually the book of Proverbs isn't about proverbs, you know, happy aphorisms for how to live your life and how to speak and how to do... No, it's an invitation to participate in the very same genius by which God created the whole universe. This is no random concept. We find it in Jeremiah 10. God made the earth by his power. He founded the world by his wisdom. Psalm 104 says the same thing. How many are your works, Lord? In wisdom you made them all. But perhaps the best parallel to Proverbs 3 is Proverbs 8, just a few chapters later. Because in Proverbs 8, something very weird happens. Wisdom is actually personified and gives a little speech. And the speech basically says, I am the co-creator with God. Here's what it says. 
The Lord brought me forth as the first of his works before his deeds of old. I was formed long ages ago at the very beginning when the world came to be. When there were no watery depths, I was given birth. I, wisdom, was there when the Lord set the heavens in place and when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundaries so the waters would not overstep his command, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I, wisdom, was constantly at his side. Now then, my children, wisdom says, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Huh. God's wisdom is his eternal genius built into the fabric of the cosmos. And expressed in his ways for our lives. I might say that again. God's wisdom is his eternal genius built into the fabric of the cosmos and expressed in his ways for our lives. That may sound too big a concept for a beautiful Sunday morning. Let me try and illustrate it in a way that I hope doesn't ruin it <clears throat> with this analogy. Do you remember a few weeks ago here, I mean, I was sitting up the back listening to Pastor Jeff preach and he, um, he boasted about how awesome he is at setting up Ikea. Do you remember this? <clears throat> and he told us he was the world expert at Ikea. Oh, I can believe it, I can believe it. Because he had to go to Texas to help Noah, his son, set up his new home. And, and there they are, uh, you know, building the Brimnes uh, bed and nightstand and the Kallax uh, shelving unit, which is apparently super difficult, right? But he nailed it, you know. <laughs> and I love the fact that, that you can see, can you, can you see there, uh, uh, the instructions, Jeff obediently following the instructions like a good man always does. Jeff would be the first to tell you that the genius of Ikea, those very clever Swedes, is built into the product itself and expressed in the instructions that come with it. There's, there's genius both in the thing and in the instructions that tell you how to do the thing. It's a happy match, right? And actually, in the case of Ikea, did you know this genius has a name? Here he is, Ingvar Kamprad. This is the founder of Ikea back in 1946 when he was 17. This guy invented the idea of do-it-yourself furniture. And he ran the company until his 90s. Extraordinary. But why am I telling you this? Well, because Jeff could have decided to ignore Ikea's wisdom. Right? He could have decided to express his own individuality by skipping steps 10 to 12. He could have improvised on step 50 and used a different screw. He could have. 
But what would he discover? He would discover he is doing himself no favours. He is not helping his son out. Because, and I hope I'm not pushing the analogy too far here, there is only one way to enjoy the blessings of Ikea. (laughs) And that is to participate in the mind of the manufacturer and follow the instructions. I sometimes have people say to me, why would I obey God? You know, that would curb my life. I want to wait until I'm, you know, old and nearly dead and maybe then I'll obey, right? Because then, I, you know, it won't curb my life for so long, but I'll get into heaven. Rubbish. You obey God because you're participating in God's own mind that is built into the fabric of the world. It's a fool who thinks, I'm just going to ad lib Ikea. But here's the point I kind of want to say over and over. And if I can leave this thought with you today, I'll be a happy preacher. Pursuing God's wisdom is the blessed life. Not in the arbitrary or trivial sense that God will reward us for obeying him. But in the deeper sense, that when we pursue wisdom, We are participating in the mind of the maker. In God's own genius, built into the fabric of the world and expressed in his ways for our lives. Wisdom isn't just intelligence. It's the mind of God imprinted on creation. It's the melody of the universe calling us to sing along. If this were a different kind of talk, I'd point out that this way of thinking about wisdom as God's own genius built into the creation means that all forms of true knowledge are in a sense a participation in God's own wisdom. I really mean this. It's so important for a Christian idea of education. Astronomy, art, carpentry, literature, medicine, landscaping, mathematics, cooking, music, and more are all participations in God's wisdom built into the creation. Why does music work? Why are there rules to music? Why why does one note fit with another and create a harmony that thrills you? What's, What's going on there? There's a wisdom built into sound waves and in your head. I'm wearing my Oxford University t shirt today. The very foundation of Oxford University in 1100, just soak that up. We both come from very young countries, don't we? Oxford was founded in the year 1100, 900 years ago. And their motto from the beginning was Dominus Illuminatio Mea. The Lord is my light. And it's still the motto today. Because when it was founded, the idea was God's wisdom lights up all the subjects that we study at Oxford University. And they were studying grammar and rhetoric and logic and astronomy 
and geometry and music. If you gain competence in some area of, of this life, like it could be brain surgery, it could be woodwork, you are participating in the very genius of God. Your work and your study are not secular add-ons. They are, in a sense, participating in God's wisdom built into the creation. But you know what? That's not the talk I'm giving today, so forget everything I just said in the last 90 seconds. (laughs) This is what I want to say. Pursuing God's wisdom is the blessed life. Not in the arbitrary sense that God will reward us for obeying him, but in the deeper sense that when you obey or pursue wisdom, we are participating in the mind of the maker. In God's own genius, built into the fabric of the world and expressed in his ways for our lives. Don't pursue wisdom for earthly benefits. Even though, sidebar, all of the research coming out of the Harvard University Center for Human Flourishing has revealed that involvement in church is one of the greatest predictors of mental health in America. That's not a good reason to become a Christian. Might be a good reason to investigate Christianity, but that's not exactly what I'm saying. And I'm certainly not saying, hey, pursue wisdom so that you'll earn God's favor. I know how, that's how the other religions think. You obey and then you get a reward. That's not how Christianity works. No, participate in God's wisdom because in doing so, you're participating in genius, in beauty, in the melody of the world. You're participating in your true purpose. And even more than that, you're sharing in God himself. There's a reason Proverbs chapter 8 personifies wisdom. As almost the offspring of God, the eternal co-creator with God. I was there when the Lord set the heavens in place and all that. Because it turns out wisdom has a name. And his name is Jesus, whom the New Testament describes as the one through whom and for whom all things were made. I really hope I'm not pushing my Ikea analogy over the cliff at this point. But Jesus is the Ingvar Kamprad of reality. I'm not making this up. This comes straight out of the apostles' teaching. Listen to this. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Christ is the wisdom of God. Not enough for you? Here's another one. 
Colossians 2. My goal, says the Apostle Paul, is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom. Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom. So let me go back to my repeated conclusion and restate it, actually. Instead of saying, pursuing God's wisdom is the blessed life, I think I need to end this series on Proverbs by saying, pursuing Jesus Christ is the blessed life. Not in the arbitrary sense that God will reward us for obeying him, but in the deeper sense that when we pursue Jesus Christ, we are participating in the mind of the maker, in God's own genius, built into the fabric of the world and expressed in his ways for our lives. Man, I hope you'll come to our Doubter's Guide to Jesus series. And bring your friends who aren't sure what to make of Christianity. Because that is where we're really going to understand how this works. In what sense are all the treasures of wisdom found in Jesus Christ? And I think I can show that wisdom, that is Jesus Christ, is more satisfying than pleasure. More reliable than flow. He is a tree of life to all who find him. May we find wisdom. May we find Jesus. Lord, please help us this morning as we grapple with these perhaps complex thoughts. Give us um, ears to hear and minds to understand. Ultimately, Lord, give us sight that we might see Jesus Christ and find in him the blessed life. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Yes, I don't know that I participated in the genius of Ikea. I think I failed at that, to be honest. But after hearing John teach, I want to participate in the genius of God by pursuing Jesus. And I want us to do the same. And I want others who don't know him to do the same. And so let's do that together. Once again, grab one of these on your way out and begin praying now about who you'd invite to discover the genius of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, let me leave you with a benediction this morning. Brothers and sisters, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you his peace. Amen.